Please open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And uh, we are coming to the story of David and Goliath. And we have been in a series in the Old Testament called Retell, where we are going over very familiar stories in the Old Testament and retelling those in the context of the New Testament and how Jesus, as I just prayed, how Jesus taught us that every part of the Old Testament was written ultimately to point us to him and how he was the perfect fulfillment of those stories and of the promises, but also how they all can teach us about how we need a Savior, how Jesus is that Savior, and how he changes our lives in response to that. So David and Goliath is probably, probably, I can't say this definitively, but probably the most popular story in the Bible. Um, at least it's one of the most stories. And there have been a lot of different interpretations of David and Goliath. There's been a lot of ink spilled and trees cut down and published in books to tell us what this story is about. Um, I have several commentaries on my bookshelf that I didn't even begin to get through that talk about the story of David and Goliath. And so in, in one sermon, what I want you to see is what's going on in this story, and then more specifically, how does it point us to Jesus? And so there might be some gaps that aren't quite filled in. There might be some questions still lingering, which I'm willing to get together anytime to talk about those things. But many of us have heard this story in a couple of different ways. And if you've grown up in the church at all, uh, this is probably what you've heard. Be like David. Be strong. Face your giants, right? And stand up for the Lord. Stand up for his name. And it's a very imperative, forced type of application. And what I'm, what I'm hoping you will walk away from this passage this morning feeling is a sense of weight lifted off because we're not David. We're not David in this story. This story is actually meant to point us to a perfect representative who conquers our enemies on our behalf, which is what David does in this story. And that perfect representative is Jesus. You see, the whole point of the story of David and Goliath, I believe, is not for us to look at David and ask ourselves, how can we be like that? But to look at David and see, oh, Jesus is like that. And so what we come to this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'm going to, this is a long chapter. I'm going to read the entire chapter. I want you to be listening as if we're telling this story and, and try to picture it. As I heard one pastor say, picture it in 3D. Try to imagine yourself there in the moment. And then we will discuss this after I finish reading. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, 
And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you are not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us.' And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. 
So Eliab, his brother, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words of David spoke, uh, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him? For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. 
the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sheraim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistines and brought it to Jerusalem but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king answered and said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So there's a, a popular story, right? Maybe you haven't actually heard that all the way through in detail. Uh, we've all heard the story, but there it is. It's a long chapter. So what do we want to get out of this? What I want you to hear from this sermon is that just as David was the representative of God's people who delivered them from the enemy by conquering their enemy, Jesus is our perfect representative who conquers our enemy for us. And so we're going to look at the three main character subjects in this passage. If you have your worship guide, I do have an outline on the back. The first we're going to look at is the Israelites, and then we'll look at Goliath, who he is, and then we'll look at David, and then after I look at those three subjects, we're actually going to have another chunk of sermon just to try to apply this whole thing. So the first thing we see is the Israelites. What's going on with them? Well, it's an army, and we know there are thousands of them because David is sent to his brothers, and uh, it is said to take this food to the commander of their thousand, which means this was probably just one troop, one group within the army of the Israelites. So there's a lot of them. There, there's thousands of them. And Eliab and the other brothers of David are part of just one of these group of a thousand. And they have a commander over them. It's similar to Roman centurions that would have, you know, you'd have these main commanders of groups of armies, and then when the whole army comes together, they each have their group that they're responsible for. And so there's a lot of them. It's a large army, and it says they would go out in battle daily. I think a lot of people picture, this is one of those pictures that I want to try to correct a little bit. A lot of people picture that there's this, these two armies facing each other for 40 days, just watching each other. But actually, there, there's a battle taking place. They're actually fighting each other. They're, you know, there's back and forth, back and forth. But what happens is every once in a while, this giant comes out and says, listen, we can be done with all this fighting. 
let's just come to a truce and and one of you pick one pick your mightiest and we'll fight each other and then we'll be done with all this fighting but it's not like there's just kind of this stillness for 40 days they're really fighting each other okay so that's the one picture i want to try to correct in your head um so there's an army but then you also have saul now saul if you remember how was saul described when the people chose him he was described as someone who was ahead above all the others right if anyone's going to go out and fight this guy, who should it be? It should be Saul, the one who's the tallest of all of them, the one who is chosen because of his stature, because of his strength, and because he's the king. He's the warrior of the people. He's the champion of the people. He's been battle-tested, and yet he doesn't go out either. So you've got this big army, and then you've got Saul, and how did it describe them? It says in verse 11... Um, when Saul and all the Israel heard the words of the Philistine, that is Goliath, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They didn't want to go against this guy. They're, they're cowering in fear. They don't want to go against Goliath. And then you also have mention of the three older brothers. And what's interesting is that they're mentioned by name in verse 13. It says, the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of these three were Eliab, Abinadab and Shammah. Now, why would it mention these three? If you go back one chapter in, in chapter 16, it talks about the anointing of David, how David was chosen to be the king that would take Saul's place. And what happens is that Samuel the prophet comes to the house of Jesse, and when he sees the older brothers, he assumes that Eliab is going to be the one that's anointed because he's maybe taller, he's older. And the Lord actually says, no, that's not the one I'm choosing. Don't look at the outward appearance because I look at the heart. And so the only three brothers that are mentioned in chapter 16 are Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. And then right after that, you get this story of David killing Goliath. And who's there watching? Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. It's almost as if the Lord's saying, see, this is why I didn't choose these three. I chose my man that I'm going to give this task to. You can go back in chapter 16 and see how that happens. But these three specifically are mentioned. Now, what's going on with Eliab? Eliab, it actually shows us in verse, starting at verse 28. Eliab, his oldest brother, heard what David was saying to the other men, and his anger was kindled against David. Why do you think Eliab was angry with David? Well, we don't know what time had lapsed between David's anointing and now this, um, this battle that's taking place, but I can only assume, this is a little bit of reading into the text, he's probably jealous of David. He's the oldest, right? He's the one that was supposed to be chosen, and now this scrappy young guy shows up at the battle? What are you doing here? You already took the anointing. Are you now going to show me up here too? Yeah, he is. But not just to show you up. He's going to do that for God's glory. And so that's, that's what you have in the first chunk of people, of characters. You've got the Israelites cowering and afraid. And there Saul, the, the one who's supposed to be their warrior king, the strong one, the one that's ahead above all the other Israelites, will not go out and do his job, which is to represent his people. So that's the Israelites. Then we get Goliath. We get this description of the giant. 
right? Now, again, uh, um, there's different interpretations. There's different scholars who look at these measurements and they try to figure out all the things about Goliath. Um, this is not uh, over-exaggeration, all right? This is a true historical story that took place. This is historical fact. And so this isn't some kind of like um, fable that the Israelites told each other to boost themselves up about who God was. And so I'm going to try quickly to try to give you an accurate picture of what's going on here in this battle. Again, they're actually fighting each other. There's real battle taking place here, real fighting going on. That says that in that story. But then you have this Goliath that shows up, and he makes these statements. And what, how does it describe him? It says his height was six cubits and a span. The way they did measurements back in the day is a cubit, they would say, was from your elbow to either the tip of your hand or if you had your fist closed to the tip of your knuckles, okay? That's a cubit. I know, that's a great... Any of our contractors in here are like, that's not accurate, right? That's going to vary depending on the person. And it's true. It varies depending on the person. A span is the measurement from the tip of your pinky to the tip of your thumb. Again, kind of subjective, right? It's going to depend on the person. So when you take these kind of measurements from the Bible, you have to kind of do this range estimate. And so some people say Goliath was this mammoth of a man, right? Nine feet tall and six inches. And that's possible if you take that cubit measurement. But in reality, he was probably a, a, a strong, athletic guy somewhere in the six foot nine to seven foot two category. That's a little more realistic, isn't it? But that's still a beast. He's still a really strong dude. Um, actually, if you were to imagine, if, if you're a basketball fan, imagine somebody like LeBron James. He's six foot nine, just, I mean, chiseled, right? Or somebody like old school Larry Bird, tall, athletic, uh, modern day, somebody like Joel Embiid or Giannis, whatever his last name is. Okay, these are athletic, tall, big dudes. That's who Goliath is. And he's battle-tested. He's a champion. He knows how to fight fights and win them. He's a warrior. And so, yes, this would be very intimidating to go up one-on-one -on -one combat against this guy. And all this armor that it lays out for us adds up to about, again, we kind of have to estimate, somewhere in the 91 pounds to 126 pounds. It's another range, okay? This is a lot of armor. And so you'll have people who look at this passage now. Malcolm Gladwell is one of the more popular ones. He's got a talk on YouTube, TEDx, who talks about Goliath in this way that, you know, if you think about somebody like Andre the Giant or something, they're not very mobile. They're kind of slow in the head. And this is a typical symptoms of someone who's got this giant uh, genetic gene is that they're very slow in their mental capacity, but also in their physical capacity. They might look big, but they're really not that intimidating. And so Malcolm Gladwell has this whole talk about how um, Goliath is just this dumb jock, kind of stupid. He needs this armor bearer to show him how to get to the battle line. And it's not true. Okay? The point of this story is that nobody wanted to face Goliath. Nobody. If he was walking and fumbling around, 
Somebody would have stepped up. This guy was intimidating. Nobody wanted to go up against him. Okay? So that's Goliath, a true warrior, a true fighter, and he's someone who hates God, the God of Israel. He's blasphemer of God, an enemy of God, a false worshiper of false gods, and he's a hater of God's people. He's an enemy of the people of God. So that's Goliath. That's the giant. And then we get David. How does it describe David? It says he's young, he's a youth, he's rugged, he's handsome, which probably means he's not really scarred up. It's, it's clear he hasn't had many battles, right? He's got a pretty face, smooth skin. Um, so it's drawing this comparison, right? Saul says, you're but a youth. Goliath has been a warrior since his youth, right? It's doing this comparison. Who are you to face this giant? You're weak, you're young, you're not even tested. You know, he hadn't even tested the armor that Saul has. And yes, he hadn't tested Saul's armor specifically, but it's also saying he hasn't really been in a fight. He doesn't know how to use all this stuff. And so that's David. He's coming in weakness, but he's coming in the name of the Lord. And if we remember, he is the one who has been chosen by the Lord to eventually lead God's people. So David is coming in faith. He's coming in faith in what God has called him to, but he's also coming in faith in how God has gifted him. Now, this isn't like a, a haughty boasting, but David does recognize how God has gifted him. And maybe he's really athletic, but it does say that he had faced bears and lions in his time watching the sheep. Now, what also is interesting to me is that when he's talking to Saul, um, Saul sees him, and David says in verse 34, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Didn't he just leave the sheep? Like, are you talking like two days ago, David, that you used to keep sheep? What are you saying? I think that's a subtle line that David's saying he's now seeing it's time for me to enter into what the Lord has called me to. He anointed me at my father's house. No one else is stepping up to face this giant. This is what the Lord has called me to. I used to keep the sheep, but now it's time to go to battle. And what, what is this? Is this haughtiness? Is it pride? No, I really think it's David's faith believing God's promises and believing what God has promised to do in him, through him. And he was there when Samuel anointed him, right? And Samuel said, you will be the king and you will always sit on the throne and someone will always sit on the throne after you. So if he goes to battle, what does that mean? It's not, it's not a presumptuous pride but what does it mean? It means I can't die. God promised I'd be on the throne. He's going to deliver me. And that's exactly what he says. He says in verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. It's faith. It's not haughty pride. It's faith. Understanding, yes, how the Lord has gifted him, but also understanding how the Lord has promised to bring him through to put him on the throne. He's acting in faith. And so he goes in faith, and what does he do? He kills Goliath. And yes, the sling was an extremely deadly weapon back then. 
There's been all kind of different scientific research. There's actually some really cool old school videos you can find on YouTube um, where there's a guy, he's taking an old medieval sling and he's slinging it at uh, a big hunk of meat, okay? And it's, uh, it's like some kind of chunk of pig or something. Um, and sorry if that grosses you out. And it goes, it, I mean, it penetrates this, the, the hide and the meat and the muscle and everything. And some people have equated it to like a 50 caliber bullet. That seems a little extreme. But this thing, when it comes out at that velocity and it flings out of that thing, and if you've got good aim on that, you can't, it, I mean, it's like a bullet. It's like a gun. And that's exactly the picture we get. This isn't like one of those, um, you know, uh, Dave and the giant pickle things. All right. This isn't like doing bounces off the head and there, there goes Goliath. He falls forward. It says it sunk into his forehead. That means he got a gunshot wound to the head and it killed him instantly. That's what happened. Falls down on his face. And what does David do? He goes and takes the sword, cuts off the head. Now, anybody that didn't think that uh, uh, the Bible has some really cool stories in it, all the guys now are like, dude, that is sick, right? Um, so that's what's happening. That's what's happened. Now, what does David say to the giant when he goes out to battle? He says, you come at me with all these swords, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of armies. So David is coming. His motive is not for his own glory. His motive is for God's glory. His motive is that people would know that our God is the true God. Look at verses, um, starting at verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. What does David say? He says, God's going to give me the victory so that all the world, all the nations will know that there is a God, and he's the God of Israel. But it's not just that the world will know, it's that this assembly will know. All these people who are cowering in fear, it's so that they will remember and not forget, oh yeah, our God is the true God, and he deserves all the glory. So what does David do? He becomes the representative of God's people who defeats their enemy on their behalf, and they just get to watch and see it happen. And then they follow him into victory. So the people were weak and afraid. David is the one who steps in and delivers. And this is what Jesus has done for us. A lot of sermons at this point will say, now look at David's faith. Look at David, he knew his gifts and he knew his enemy's weakness. Look at David, look at David, look at David. But wait, the point of this, remember what Jesus told us? The point is that we wouldn't stop at David, but that we would continue and see Jesus. Because what has Jesus done for us? Jesus has conquered our enemies. Jesus has become the perfect representative of God's people who has won the fight for us on the cross. 
Jesus is the one who delivers us from sin and from the devil. Jesus is the one who is the shepherd king. Jesus is the one who is the warrior savior. You see, the whole point of this is not that you would say, let's be like David. The whole point of this is we're not David. We are Saul. We are the cowering Israelites who are not strong enough to face our enemies. We can't stand up to the power of sin in and of ourselves. We are not strong enough to face Satan on our own. We need a perfect, saving, representative king. And that's exactly who Jesus has come to be for us. So, you know, a lot of people will leave a sermon on David and Goliath with this burden on their back, right? <laughs> be like David. But the point of the gospel is you're free. You are freed from the power of sin and the power of the devil because Jesus has come to be your Savior. He, he went to the cross on your behalf. He came in weakness and conquered the enemy. Do you see that? Do you see how Jesus is the one who fulfills this passage? Not us. You can't live up to that. And actually, if you think about it, David couldn't either. David failed miserably. You know, we gave Saul a hard time, right? Because he was the warrior king who was supposed to be out there in battle for his people. Well, David later in his life ends up doing the same exact thing, same, following the same pattern. While his people are out in battle, he sits in his palace and goes and chases after women. So David's not a perfect example either. David needed Jesus, and we need Jesus. And so Jesus has come to be the perfect saving representative of God's people. Revelation 5 actually says, gives us a picture of this. The very end of the story of the earth, of Scripture, but also of the world. John has a vision, and it says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. What is John picturing? What is he seeing? He's seeing another valley of Elah story. No one's worthy. No one's able to go out and, and do what is needed to be done. But then in verse 5 of Revelation 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Only Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Only Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who is able to conquer our enemies of sin and the devil and death itself. And that is exactly what he has done for us on the cross. Jesus, the perfect saving representative, went to battle for us and he won. He beat the devil and he beat sin by nailing it to the cross. So what are we supposed to do with this story then? 
Are you, are you telling me, like, then we don't have anything to do? <laughs> you, I've always been told to be like David. What am I supposed to do now? Um, well, the first is to really believe this. Believe this good news that Jesus has come to save sinners like you and me. That Jesus has come to save weak and, um, hey, let me just say it. Jesus has come for weak and flaky people. And I'm one too. And he came for us. And I'm so glad to be a part of a church that welcomes weak and flaky people. Because that's who Jesus welcomes. That's who Jesus came for. And that's who we are. So, yes, just believe is the first thing. But then we can step into some of this and apply it specifically. What are some of those ways? Well, um, a lot of people like to take this passage and ask, what are your giants? How are you going to face your giants? So let's just try to walk through a couple of those situations that are often talked about that we're told, you know, face the giant and defeat it. But what I want you to see is how, no, it's not up to you to do that. It's how Jesus helps you go through those situations. So think about your habitual sin, your secret sin that you don't want anybody to know about, the one that you're not willing to confess because you are afraid. You're afraid of what people might think of you. You're afraid of what the, the consequences of that sin coming out in the open is. And what Jesus says is the gospel frees you to be honest with yourself and with others about who you really are. And the gospel really does cleanse you from that. The, the gospel of Jesus really does forgive sinners. And that's how Jesus helps you defeat your sin. The power of sin that has a hold in your life. It's just by the freedom of the gospel that says your sins are really forgiven if you believe. What about if your marriage is really struggling? It's, it, you know, it's all some kind of public show that in public people think your marriage is great and it's all together. But behind the scenes, you can't stand each other. I mean, things are really difficult. Can Jesus help in that situation? The first way he helps is by granting you forgiveness to forgive the other, but also giving you that patience and that forbearance and the strength because that is what he has shown you. And it, it's not going to be easy. It's never promised to be easy. But yes, Jesus can help you in a difficult marriage. Jesus can help you with your disrespectful and rebellious child. Jesus can help you say, I, I'm out of control. I can't do this. I need your help. I'm too weak. Jesus, I need you to help me. It can help you with that hard situation at work. Not that he promises to get rid of that situation, but that he can help you face it because in your weakness, he is strong. What about the help situation? I've heard preachers say, you know, uh, be like David and, and, and speak your cancer out of your life. Are you kidding me? Jesus might not take away your cancer. He might not take away your health issues. But what he promises is, regardless of where this ends, he has conquered death and the grave. And you will be raised up by faith to be with him forever. So yes, you will beat cancer. It might not be here on earth, 
but you will beat cancer by the power of Jesus who has conquered death. So yes, we can face our giants in that way, but it's not in our own strength. It's by faith in Jesus. And then I just want to end with this. The gospel really is good news. Okay? If you leave a sermon, there are moments where we leave sermons and we feel burdened, and maybe that burden is conviction of sin that you still need to deal with. You need to do some business with God. But the gospel really is supposed to free us, that we leave um, feeling a weight lifted off, that we can breathe and say, thank you, Jesus. I cannot do this on my own. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not David. Thank you, Jesus. And so let's go out this morning feeling the freedom of the gospel, that it really is good news for weak and flaky sinners like me and like you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this story of David and Goliath. Um, forgive us when often we misinterpret and misapply your scriptures. We read ourselves into the text rather than seeing Jesus. Help us... Um, Help us to read the Bible for ourselves with a gospel understanding and a gospel lens that we would leave your word convicted of our own sin, but comforted with the truth that Jesus is a friend for sinners. And let that lift any weight that would burden us down um, because you have set us free in the gospel. I pray this by your grace, through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.